right, this is part two of a two-part episode. So if you didn't listen to the first part, then it's worth going back and listen to that first, because that'll give you a bit more context on like the history of Lithuanian food and that sort of stuff. If not, you can listen to this episode anyway, because we're just talking about some different dishes, but some things might not quite make sense. Welcome to The Dish, the culinary travel podcast focusing on the stories behind world-famous foods. We are your hosts, Tomo and Megzi from foodfuntravel.com. Join us for tasty histories, destination food guides, and more. In the second part of this two-part Lithuania podcast... Traditional dishes of Lithuania that you can try in the capital, Vilnius. Some tasty adopted dishes that have become local favorites. Plus traditional Lithuanian desserts, including a particularly spiky cake. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Dish. Yes, we are back with part two of our Lithuania podcast series ready to talk more potatoes i'm guessing no no last episode was the potato episode oh so we're done with potatoes this episode well there's still some potatoes because it's lithuania but that's what i thought there's not a lot of potatoes in this it's not potato heavy like last time which was just oh so heavy little to deep potatoes (laughs) that's irish yeah but i mean you know it's a it's it's an ancient potato quote is it yes Ancient. Yeah. Even though potatoes didn't come to Europe until like the 16th century. Yeah, but people have been saying fiddle dee dee potatoes, but you know, no one knew what the meaning was until a potato turned up and they're like, oh, now that makes sense. Oh, is that how history works? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know the first time I saw a potato, I was like, fiddle dee dee. I get it now. Uh, now you understand what it all means. Because mm-hmm. the first time you saw a potato, you were probably about six months old. And you seem to remember that exact time and having those thoughts. That's quite impressive. Uh, Yeah, brilliant memory here. Very impressive. Yes, in the last episode, we talked about the history of Lithuanian food and Lithuania in general. Of course, quite a lot of crazy history because it's the center of Europe. Mm -hmm. And we also talked about some of the most popular potato dishes because potato is like the most popular food and the history of potato. In Lithuania in general. Yep. Um, So, yeah, this episode a little bit less potato heavy. Can't get away from the potatoes completely, but we're going to talk about some of the other dishes because there are lots of other things to eat. It's not just potatoes. There's pork as well. Yes. And there you go. So that's it. That's the episode over. Thanks very much. Thanks for joining us. All right. No, there's a few other things as well. Beetroot, you know. Good tasty things. There is tasty things. All right. A a quick reminder, yeah, in the last episode, a little bit of a recap on some of the history stuff. At its height in the 16th century, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth spread all the way from the south of modern-day Estonia through Latvia, Belarus, parts of Western Russia, a lot of Ukraine as well, uh, all the way to the edge of the Black Sea, as well as, of course, most of Poland. And its occupation by Russia happened from 1795 until 1990, with a brief period in the 20th century where they were actually independent prior to that as well, which means some of the cuisines that are popular Lithuanian foods are going to bear some resemblance to stuff that you'd also find in Poland and you'd also find in Latvia and Belarus, etc. Yeah. So, yeah, we're not necessarily going to say that all of the dishes in this episode are from the tiny area of land that is now no, Lithuania I mean, today. I think if you, if you look at the history of Europe, you know that the majority of borders are quite a new thing 
in history. So you don't have to look far back to be like, oh, most yeah. of Central Europe was the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and now Austria is a tiny little exactly. country, and Hungary Borders is a separate country. Borders have changed quite and- dramatically, but food has stayed relatively the same for the people that continued to, you know, stay in those lands. This shared food culture. That's all we're trying to say. All right, let's talk about, first of all, said pork was going to be important. Let's just hit straight in with the pork. Oh, I like pork. Let's talk about Skilandus. It's a historic cured pork sausage. Yeah, there's like so many places in Europe that have a cured pork sausage. Yep. And a lot of them have similar ingredients. So I'm um, like, is there maybe we should be doing a history of sausage episode at some point? Oh, that seems like a lot. But yes, deep dive into sausages. <laughs> Careful how you phrase that. <laughs> All right. Um, yes, this is a classic cold smoked cured sausage from at least since the 16th century, but probably before that. Or it'd be interesting to know if sausages didn't turn up until the 16th century. Because, yeah, they were definitely being made in other places before that. And probably in Lithuania, too. Scalandus TSG. And I don't know what the TSG stands for, but I, I, apparently that's the Tasty code words. stuff. Guys, yeah, tasty sausage, guys. Uh-huh. Uh huh. As of January 2010, this is now a PDO product, so it's a protected designation of origin product, protected by the EU. It has to be made in Lithuania from Lithuanian produce. It's a mix of pork and beef with lard, salt, pepper, and garlic. Sometimes they add allspice. It's an unusual one for mm, a sausage. That is. I don't always add it though. Apparently. Uh, the meat and spices are mixed at a temperature of no more than four degrees, so they have to keep it in a cold Quite mix. Chills, yeah. Uh, well, yeah. You don't want your sausage to go off, do you? Your meat is going to go well, off. Yeah, but like, I mean, four degrees is very chilled. That's refrigerated temperature. Yeah. yeah so the meat's going to keep nice and fresh, and then it's encased, of course, in natural sausage casing, either from pork or beef. Uh, it's then cold smoked for anything from 2 to 15 days at a temperature between 18 and 13 degrees Celsius before being air dried at room temperature, which has to be less than 18 degrees C for at least 30 days. So there you go. There's a whole bunch of technical stuff. There you go. Go make yourself some sausage. We've just given you all the know-how. Yeah, yeah that's all you need easy, to know. Easy peasy. You know the ingredients, you know the temperatures. Done and done. Traditionally, this process began, as with everywhere around Europe, uh, with the pig slaughter at the start of winter. Everyone then preserves all the meat products, makes sausages, etc. That is like a common thing in the olden days. Yep. And the curing process and eventual stirring of the scalandas meant that it could stay as a, an edible product that people could keep quite easily uh, until the late summer. So like all the way from as soon as it had finished curing, sort of around New Year's sort of time, just keep going for six months or more. Until they get to the harvest, when they're harvesting all the hay and that sort of, like, rye bread and all those other sort of summer harvest wheat. Yeah. That sort of thing. So then they have other food to eat. So, you know, they got it all sorted out. They got it smarted up, getting it done. They knew what they were doing. Yeah, exactly. And this sausage, and I, I guess this is another tradition that sort of fits with the rest of Europe. It's sort of considered as something you could uh, give to honoured guests, because it's probably for anyone who's living a subsistence lifestyle, the... Sausage is probably one of well, the most valuable. I think any sort products. of meat product would be quite an honoured gift to give to someone. Exactly, and the tradition is is maintained today, and that you can go and buy this EU certified traditional sausage, and you can save it for some special friends, bring it home, and share it out. There you go. 
It comes in a variety of different shapes, from long tubes made like about four inches wide uh, to uh, just these crazy like football-sized tear-shaped things that you see hanging around in all the markets. Yeah, yeah, they were giant. Yeah, so I was surprised by that. I assumed that I'd, most sausages are going to be tube sort of shape or flat tubes, but these literally look like tear-shaped rugby balls or American footballs. So that was quite strange. Hadn't seen a lot of those around Europe before. And they've got to take forever to cure on the inside. Yeah, you would think so. Different amounts of lard are included. So you can have a fatty sausage or a lean sausage because, of course, lard is essential. Because everyone was concerned about their, you know, calorie intake back in the day. <laughs> their concerns for the calorie intake were the opposite concerns. They were. They're like, give me the calories. Like, can I have extra lard, please? Yep. Yes. Plus the lard's cheaper. So that's a good way to make yourself some cheaper red. All right. Second dish. And I, I ate some of this last night in Tbilisi. We were out in Tbilisi and uh, I felt I wanted to go and enjoy this again because it's fantastic. It's dirty awesome. So, yeah, this is a popular dish uh, across lots of parts of Eastern Europe. Definitely famous in Lithuania. It's called Kepta Duona or Duona. Kepta Duona. I don't know. Nah, I don't know. I can't be sure. Uh, one of my favorite beer snacks, though. I did enjoy it with some beer last night. It's like it's deep fried rye bread. That goes all crispy, and it's sort of garlicky. Sometimes it gets served with garlic that you can rub on it, and sometimes it's just sort of got an essence of garlic. But it's like crispy, but it's soft, soft as well. It, I don't know. I love the texture of this bread, the way that they make it. Because, yeah, as you said, you've got the garlic flavor as well, and then you pick it up, and so, it, so it's firm to pick it up. But then when you bite in it, it's got the crunch on the outside, but it's still kind of nice and soft. I mean, I guess they fry it at quite a high temperature, so it crisps up pretty quickly on the outside, but the middle doesn't like, yeah. super cook. It's lovely. I am yeah. sure it is calorific. But you don't think of that. You think of the healthy side. It's like, oh, look at me. I'm eating rye bread. This is good for me. Sure. Mm, fiber, fiber, fiber. Yeah, sure. Why not? I ate a lot of it last night. It was great. Might be served with a dairy-based dip on the side. It depends what sort of area you're from. The one that we had in... Vilnius, the capital of Lithuania, was just served with garlic, raw garlic that you rubbed on the bread. And that was also very awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so rye as a grain has been cultivated in Central Europe since 1500 BC, probably originating from Turkey. Uh, it's most popular in the regions around Poland, Lithuania, Russia, Ukraine today, and has been for quite a while. One reason being that it's really resistant to cold winters, unlike grains like wheat. So if they do get like an early frost and stuff, the rye crop tends to be able to survive that. Mm -hmm. uh, it also grows in really poor quality soils like sandy soils and peaty soils. Uh, that is good. Yeah. Wheat is actually surprisingly fickle. So, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, so yeah. Good that they found I love rye. It's only something that I've really, it wasn't really popular as, when I was growing up as a kid. I know rye is really popular now, like in all the supermarkets and stuff like that. But I don't recall having it until like probably at least I was an adult. Still, it depends where you are. It's very Australia popular. Australia is very far away. It's very popular here in the supermarkets in Georgia and in Eastern Europe. I don't know if in England, if I've really seen a lot of rye bread, it's more still of a bit of an artisanal bread. It's just it's not grown so much in England, so yeah. I am not aware of this bread being widely available. Like you can find it in most supermarkets, but so if you don't know what we're talking about when we mention the rye bread, we're talking about like the really, really dark brown bread that you might have seen. As, it's as, almost black. Yeah, as Tomo just said, like you might see it in like an artisanal bakery or something, and it'll be yeah, almost black, like dark, 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 dark brown bread. Yeah, dense. Um, yeah, dense bread, and yeah, it's delicious. 
No, I love it and could have it. Whether it's deep fried or not, I would still eat it. Oh, yeah. Dip it in some stuff. Maybe put not some, for sandwiches. Put some Vegemite on it? it no, never it, put Vegemite on it. Good for Vegemite. No, no, that's that's a gross thing to say, and you should never say that again. <laughs> uh, but apparently, it also naturally battles weeds, and so you don't need so many chemicals and herbicides and things to protect it when it's growing. Love it. So, yeah, it's, it's all around pretty good. Uh, so, yeah, of course, that makes it a very good crop for Lithuania, possibly all the way back to the Bronze Age. So, although the grain may have originated in Turkey, they might have already transported it up and started growing it there back in the Bronze Age. And today, yeah, super popular. You find it in every supermarket. It's, it's probably more popular than wheat bread in Lithuania. Definitely. At least that's how it felt when you went to supermarkets and markets, especially local markets. There was like a guy that would be just selling all these different types of rye bread. All right, let's talk about another dish that you have to eat. Salty uh, barshel, which I have definitely pronounced wrong. Yeah, it sounds like you absolutely decimated that. <laughs> Let me try this again. Shultai Burshai. That sounds better. Shultai Burshai. This one, I actually got the phonetic pronunciation for. Okay. So hopefully, <laughs> uh, hopefully I'm a bit closer on this one. This one actually managed to find that. So that helps. Uh, this is Lithuanian borscht. Uh, their cold beetroot soup. That was yum. Yeah. And it's the weirdest thing because... I mean, I know people that grew up with beetroot soup would probably be used to having pink soup, but I'm not that used to having pink soup. And it was very pink. It's probably the only pink soup I've ever had. Yeah. And it was really tasty. Even though we were in Lithuania in the wintertime, we still decided to try the cold soup and it was very tasty. It was, yeah. There's a lot of people that are like, it's actually a lot of people will like give you a weird stink eye if you have cold beetroot soup in the winter, but it's delicious, so I eat it anyway. <laughs> There's a couple of people we met like that. So. It's definitely supposed to be a summer soup, but these days people just eat it whenever they want. If it's tasty, eat it, whatever. You got beetroots, you got dairy, you can make it. So, yeah, it's fine. So, this is Lithuania's sort of other well-known national dish. We talked in the last episode about sepalinas, the uh, zeppelin-shaped meat-stuffed potato dumplings. And yeah, shultai burshai is, is the other one. It's one of the most popular dishes and it's considered a national symbol, probably uh, because of this bright pinkness. I reckon that helps. It's not just the fact that it does taste pretty good. It is also like, it's such an iconic, unusual-looking dish. Yeah. You're like, you know, this is something, this is our dish as Lithuanians. It's, yeah. It's got to be grabbing hold of people's imaginations due to the color. Yeah, you remember it. That's for sure. Yes, definitely. Uh, it's quite simple. It's beetroot mixed with kefir or kefiras in uh, Lithuania, which is a sour fermented milk drink. It's almost like it's like a yogurt drink. It's like a sour yogurt drink. Yeah. Kefir is mixed with pickled beetroot and that gives the pink color. And then they normally add in dill and cucumber as well. Yum, yum. And sometimes also pickled cucumber. So, like a bit of both. I'm fine with all of that. A little bit more of a salty hit. Yep. So, the connection with the more famous dish, borscht, in general, which is another famous range of sour soups popular through Ukraine, Poland, and lots of the Russian Empire, former Russian Empire and places that used to be occupied by the Russian Empire. There's obviously a, a very close connection with all of those dishes, especially as the Lithuanian for Shutai Burshai 
it, it actually just means cold borscht. It literally translates as cold borscht. Yeah. So they're not sort of denying that this dish is... I'm sure they have their own little spin on it. They're like, well, we do it with this, and that's what makes it different. They are all a little bit different, I yeah. think. And the, the word borscht is from Ukrainian, supposedly. So you could argue that perhaps when Ukraine was part of the Lithuanian Republic, uh, Lithuanian Commonwealth, that maybe it was there that they picked up the influence from and it, it moved through the rest of the region from Ukraine, possibly. Or maybe not. Maybe Ukraine just renamed it at a later date to Borscht and then made it more popular. I mean, yeah. there doesn't seem to be a really definite story on this one. So, yeah, the lines blur a bit as to which part of that region it came from originally. Possibly Ukraine. I'm sure any Ukrainians listening will be like, obviously Duh. Ukraine. Obviously. But that said, although it seems like it's probably an ancient dish, some sources think that it's a more modern dish that didn't really arrive until the 19th century. And possibly just out of simple utility, because it's a very, it's a cold soup, so it's super quick and easy to make, and it's made from very cheap ingredients. Well, I guess it comes down to the question of where does beetroot come from? Uh, beetroot is from Europe. I, I feel like, I can't remember the exact date for beetroot, but I think it is such an old It's been kicking around for a while. That it's very unlikely that the soup came at the very inception of beetroot into the diet. Yeah. <laughs> that would be sort of great. Beetroot's a, an older vegetable, as far as I'm aware. So this dish might only date to the 19th century from Ukraine, or it could be from anywhere inside the Duchy of Lithuania back in the 16th century when that was the big thing. 15th century. No one seems to be sure. Because no one wrote it down. Although I find it really interesting, there's one little clue that makes me think that perhaps it started in Lithuania, but it's difficult to say. But uh, the Polish name for this same dish is uh, uh, Klodnik Litschski. Oh, good. (laughs) Klodnik Litschski, which means Lithuanian cold borscht. So they're specifically Poland is like, well, it's definitely not from Poland. It's the Lithuanian one. But being as Ukraine could have been Lithuania, well, it was Lithuania back in those days. But that would also suggest that if this dish came from Lithuania, it came from Lithuania at a point before Ukraine separated from the Lithuanian Commonwealth and before 1795 when Russia took over. (laughs) Okay, this is all getting too complicated. It's it's a bit of a... It's beetroot soup. It's yum. Go try it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's a very refreshing, slightly sour soup. Uh, you'll find it on menus all over Vilnius. As we said, even in winter, they are still serving it up because it looks cool and people want to Instagram it. It is a good Instagram shot, for sure. Now, as I said earlier, we can't get away from potatoes. So even when you order this soup, you get potatoes on the side. Yeah. That's what it is. Probably some boiled potatoes. Should also, like, we're not going to do a big old list of different sort of soups because you can just go to the article foodfuntravel.com slash Lithuania podcast if you want to find out about some of the other soups. But definitely look out for some of the hot soups as well. Uh, there is a hot borscht, hot beetroot soup, uh, sauerkraut soup I quite liked as well, and lots of wild mushroom soups. We've, I liked the wild mushroom soups. You can even get them in a bread bowl, in a yeah. rye bread bowl. Yep. It was which is cool. nice. Um, All right down my alley, that sort of stuff. Yum. Yeah, we mentioned that there was lots of wild mushrooms going on in the last episode, and the wild mushroom soup is definitely one to try. All right, now on to something that does have a, a little bit of an unusual history behind it. I, it's weird that some dishes, they seem to write stuff down about them, and other dishes, they just don't bother. 
Yeah. It's always strange. Well, usually it's the ones that are like the commoner dishes don't get written down about, but something that was like involved with royalty at some point usually gets mentioned. Things like that seem to happen. So this one we're going to talk about kibinai. Uh, Many countries in Europe have like a traditional savoury pie, like a pastry stuff with meat or some other fillings. Lithuania, of course, is no exception in that tradition. But the way that they ended up with these meat pies was quite different from a lot of other people. So essentially, in the late 14th century, sometime around 1397, so quite specific, the Grand Duke Vitartus. Told you, royalty. Grand Duke, yeah. He led a bunch of troops into the Crimea, which is the peninsula on the north coast of the Black Sea, the little sticky out bit that sort of disagreed between Ukraine and Russia these days. Yes. Uh, definitely now part of Russia at the moment. But he wanted to expand his lands and take away the lands of some other people, as kings like to do. Indeed. Or, or dukes like to do. And uh, So that region at the time was owned by the Tatar people, which is a Turkic tribe originally, but he turned up and they really were a bit of a pushover and he just killed lots of people and took the whole area pretty easily. And what happened was there was some people living there from local tribes that he sort of adopted, if you will. I Enslaved, adopted, it's a little hard to Yeah, depends say. on uh, who you're talking to when it comes to those historical documents. Yeah, people write their own histories. Yeah. Uh, most of the histories seem to think that the local tribe was quite impressed possibly even helped out the duke to capture some of their like of the other tribes that perhaps they weren't as good friends with so they made nice with the big strong army and were like we'll help you defeat our enemies if you give us a good deal well that happened quite often too yeah yeah so apparently about 400 families from this tribe which is called the Karaiti tribe, or sometimes the Karaim tribe. So the Duke brought them back to his capital in Lithuania, the capital Trakai at the time, not Vilnius. Different place. It's like, this, uh, it's like a lake capital. It's like an island in the middle of the lake that sort of connects to one little bit of land, and then there's another group of islands, and there's a massive castle. Yeah, you can do a day trip out there from Vilnius. Apparently, it's very lovely. We didn't have time, but if, but if you want to do a day trip, go to yeah. the old capital. Big old castle on the lake on a little island about 20 kilometers west of Vilnius, so definitely a good day trip. So yes, depending on whose opinion you believe, these 400 or so families were originally brought as servants, and although they weren't the only tribe brought back from the area, they seemed to be the one tribe that had specific mention, and they proved very loyal to the duke, and so they were rewarded with their own freedom. So they were brought as servants originally, but they were actually rewarded their own freedoms very quickly. Because uh, they had become trusted, and they were allowed to continue practicing their own religion, and they became like protectors and guards of the castle area, and they became farmers and craftsmen around there as well. And they were also cooking, cooking up a storm for the noblemen. So they became chefs. So they really just fit into all these different roles and uh, became a very popular part of the society. Yep. By fourteen forty one, in fact, they had been granted a complete level of autonomy and self governance. So they're even just managing themselves. They did very well. Yeah. Within like 45 years, they'd gone from servants who'd been conquered to uh, we've, we've now got all the best jobs and we're in charge of ourselves. It's a pretty meteoric rise. Yeah. But their culinary contribution, they brought with them these crescent-shaped hand pies that are crimped on along the top. And they were called kibin originally and said to have been stuffed with mutton. That was the first filling. And Grand Duke Vitatus 
and his soldiers really loved these pies when they first tried them out during wartime. Because who doesn't love pie? And they're like, all right, so we love these pies when we're on a campaign and now we're back at the castle. Can you cook me up some pies and serve them to all my noble friends? Yep. And that's what they did. And the food and cultural traditions of the Cataratis tribe have been continuously maintained since those days. And there's still about 65 ethnic members of that tribe living in the old capital of Trakai, where they actually make their kibin, or now more commonly known as kibinai. Uh, they make them every day by fresh. Like, oh, so you definitely should go out there for a day trip yeah. to go and get some pie. Eat some pies, see a castle. Nice. Uh, yeah, that's pretty much the deal. Yeah, you've got to make them fresh. Their website was very specific about this. So yeah. like, when you come to eat these in our home city here, we make them fresh. We're not cooking up frozen ones. We didn't make a batch at the start of the month and then re-eat them every day. Love it's it. It's not a supermarket. We're making proper oh, stuff. Now you're making me want pie. Of course. Well, always want pie. That's true. Pie is awesome. But you can easily find these pies in Vilnius as well. And all around the country, they have become a bit of a, a national tradition. Good snack. Mm-hmm. All right, next up. I think I'd be doing a complete disservice to the entire region if I don't talk about this dish or this product, at least. Uh, Meg's least favorite thing from the region. Bit of herring. You love a bit of salty, oily fish? Oh, I didn't want any of it. Oh, dear. That is a problem. It's a very important product in the area. I don't want to eat it. I don't want to see it. I I don't want anything to do with it. Oh, dear. I've had a bit of a renaissance personally eating it because I... Since having that in that area, I was like, oh, yeah, this is great. Yeah, I noticed. <laughs> well, before we were living in Portugal, I ate lots of sardines. And now we're living in this area and it's all about the herring. So I'm like, yep. I, I wasn't a fan of the sardines either. Oh, dear. <laughs> to be honest, you can keep your fishy yuckness gross. Keep it away from me. One of the most simple dishes that you're going to find is just herring with potatoes. What? <laughs> what? Just order some like pickled preserved herring, and it just comes with a side of potatoes. Boiled potatoes with a little bit of dill sprinkled on top. Uh, yeah, yeah, a little bit of dill is always good. But a dish that's a little bit more interesting than the, just the staple like that is called shuba, or in Lithuania it's called silke pathalusa. This like this is a hard language. Well, they can't make anything simple. I'm sorry, Lithuanians. This is supposed to be an Indo-European language. It's supposed to be the same base as English and Spanish and Latin and everything. But my God, <laughs> it's not easy to pronounce Lithuanian stuff for some reason. So essentially, this dish that I couldn't pronounce just then, more commonly known as shuba, is dressed herring. Not. It's not originally a Lithuanian dish, but it's become a really popular dish in the region during the Soviet period. And the nickname, as I said, the easy name to say is shuba, which is a Russian word for a big fur coat, specifically the shuba. Like, it's a coat. Okay, but that doesn't sound appetizing. So how you don't are want they to eat a fur coat? A furry herring, no. This name, it's supposed to refer to the dish meaning herring under a fur coat. Does that not sound better? No. No? What? What you don't want t- some stinky pickled herring under a fur coat? What is the fur coat in this dish? This is, this is interesting. I mean, it's a metaphorical name. Okay. There's no actual fur in this dish. Because the imagery is not doing this any justice. <laughs> okay, well, I'll explain what the dish actually is. There's Please. no fur in it. So, essentially, at the bottom, you've got a layer of herring, 
Then you have like a layer of potatoes with mayonnaise, possibly a layer of carrots, but not always. And then like a layer of, of grated beetroot on top. Oh, I tried this. I had a mouthful of it. But the herring part obviously really punches through. But that's the point. Yeah. So you got this sort of really heavy salad. These places with salads because it's a cold dish, but it's like potatoes and mayonnaise and <laughs> yeah. mixed with beetroots. And yeah, it's not really that healthy, but that was sort of the point. And I really like the way that the herring sort of punches through the, the sort of fatty flavors and the carbs and stuff. It, I think it works great. I love it. I will definitely be getting that again, but maybe not when you're looking. Yeah, I won't, I won't be partaking in it. But uh, I mean, once again, an interesting dish for Instagramming. Oh, yeah. It's crazy pretty. Yeah. Because it's got that massive purple layer on top. Yeah. And then, yeah, it's like an orange layer underneath sometimes. It's, it's crazy colorful. But I think from everyone I saw trying it, you definitely need to try and get all of the layers in one mouthful to make the whole thing really oh, yeah. pop. And that's what really makes the dish, you know, as awesome as it is. So, I guess, yeah, I don't know why they use the word for coat to explain it but because it's got all this like fluffy potato and beetroot on top yeah, it's all been grated up though. i you don't think they would know. go for like a term referring to layers or something but well, dressed i can layer. see it is a layer dressed well okay i understand but yeah dressed i understand because it kind of like it pretties up the herring yes yeah, this is a well-dressed bit of herring yes for sure but yes by legend this dish was apparently invented as a cheap and filling snack to accompany beer and help line the stomach to stop drunk people getting into fights. Makes sense. We've heard that story with a lot of dishes. A few dishes for that purpose, yes. Yes, so apparently, as the legend says, there was a night that was getting particularly raucous in Moscow on New Year's Eve 1918. And this led to the bar owner, Anastas Bogomilov, rustling up this new dish. And at this time, shortly after the ruling of the Tsars of Russia had been executed, this is like five months after the Romanovs had been executed yep. in a basement, World War I ended, and pretty much the whole revolution thing was happening. It, yeah. was, like, it was going into Russia full was swing at that point. going on. So people were getting pretty passionate about things and getting into a lot more fights than usual. So apparently if they eat a lot of food, that'll calm them down. Because you're a bit I mean, too bloated to actually fight someone, maybe? Yeah, it doesn't hurt. But yeah, it soaks up the booze. So that could be it. But it's said that also the, uh, the colourful colours of this dish was representing, like, the blood of the revolutionaries and stuff. And, like, blood isn't purple. No. Or orange. This is a real stretch. <laughs> he just grabbed whatever he had in the cupboard and threw it together. Yeah. I think it's more of a... Uh, after the fact, going like, this became a very popular dish during the revolution, so it's a revolutionary dish! Yeah. Everything's revolutionary! <laughs> uh, yeah, I can't see the colour connection with this dish at all. No. But that is one story. So yeah, it's a layered salad, all of these different layers. It's normally sort of like two inches high, that sort of thing. It's circular. Yeah. It's almost, always circular. It, it's interesting. Or I think it's always circular. Maybe some people do it square, but most of the ones I've seen and all the photos I've seen were all circular ones. Yeah, it's like a little cake. It's like a little layered cake of beetroot and fish. <laughs> so, yeah. And all of like, the beetroot obviously stains through to the layer below and stuff. So it's sort of like, yeah, all the colours blend a little bit. It's cool. The beetroot's like a purple icing on top of this weird herring cake. You're not selling this dish no? to anybody. Oh, it's delicious. Yeah, so much mayo that is going to fill your blood with fat and definitely stop you getting into a fight. 
There you go. That's the original, that's the legend that apparently it's a revolutionary dish. There is another revolution connection, which may have been created after the fact as well. Um, the word shuba, if you actually translate that back into Russian and look at the original letters, those original letters then make up an acronym that in Russian back translates to English as meaning boycott and damnation to chauvinism and decadence. Oh, that's just too convoluted. No, I mean, apparently Schuber, those, yeah, whatever no, those I letters get it, translate but the as. fact that yeah. it, like, the whole, like, translate to this and then change into English, but then shift this around and hop on one leg and <laughs> drink three litres of beer and then say it again. And then that's how it came No, about. supposedly this was an actual revolutionary saying. Yeah. But whether it had any connection to the dish, who knows? Yeah. Did it have a connection to the fur coat? Possibly. I think it could also, it's connected with the idea that the coat is ridiculously over the top, like a big, massive, expensive fur coat. Yeah. So it's what rich people could afford. I mean, that was the problem. Yeah. The whole revolution was that everybody in Russia was starving. Yeah. So, you know, it was down to, you know, taking down the upper classes. Yeah, exactly. So that could be what's going on. It's probably got no actual connection to the dish at all. One other couple of historians from Russia, Olga and Pavel Shutkin. They suggested that this sort of stacked salad really didn't become popular until the 1960s, and all of these other stories were just made up to create this wonderful legend. It's quite a time difference. I would believe the 60s because there was a lot of really weird stacked dishes coming out. If you look at a cookbook from the yeah. 60s, they are doing some gross stacked stuff. I would believe it from the 60s for sure. It seems more likely with the evolution of and food. Jello. They were doing like jelly, savory jellies. Everything was like okay. gelatinized. Ugh. 60s was weird. It would have been quite interesting that some random bar owner on New Year's Eve of all times went and created this very over-the-top fancy dish when all he really wanted to do was to make sure the drunk people ate a lot of food. Yeah, he would have just thrown some potatoes at them. Just give them potatoes. Give yeah. them potatoes. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, once again, potatoes slipped into another dish. Because well, it's not know. a potato dish, but it, it does have quite a lot of potatoes in it. Before we move on to drinks and desserts, I want to do a quick mention of one other little dish. That uh, it doesn't have a lot of history to it, but this was something that I really loved when we were there. This one's called Kastinis. It's an ethnic food from the Zemaichal region, central Lithuania. And I, I just, I love this a lot. It's sour cream butter. That's all it is. <laughs> and I just loved it. How you make this is you blend butter and sour cream together over a warm water bath. And that's it. You just let them melt together. Yep. And then you put them back in the fridge or in the cold outside and they recongeal into this amazing buttery cream. Butter boom. Oh, yeah. Sometimes you might add garlic, sometimes mint, allspice or caraway seeds. Definitely some extra salt is going to make it tasty. But yeah, then it just becomes this very spreadable butter because it's mixed with all this sour cream. It's like a somewhere in between. Have they specified how much percentage of fat should be in the sour cream to make it... As yeah. tasty as you enjoy it. I guess that's up to your own decision. Because mm. one thing I didn't realize until actually traveling around, especially like Eastern Europe or just Europe in general, because growing up in Australia, I mean, especially like being a kid in the 90s, everything like that whole fat-free sort of craze came through. So everything like sour cream, everything is like 0%, 1%, 2%, that sort of thing. And then you hit Europe and you've got sour creams and yogurts and stuff like that that are like 12 15, 20%, 25% fat. Like, 
fat. Like, I'd never seen anything like it in my life. It's insane. And it's incredibly good. I mean, it. this is oh, why yeah. dairy in Europe is just insanely good. Yeah, forget about health. Let's just nah. get that fat. Nah. Get it on. Yeah, 35% sour cream and well, stuff. Well, the thing was, it was amazing. fine in Europe because back in the day, it well, I mean, even still today, a lot they of They wanted the, as many calories as possible. They wanted as many calories and everyone walked everywhere anyway, so they weren't fat schlubs like we are today. So, they and, could and have. And maybe they were starving. So, you know, yeah, <laughs> they yeah. just wanted to eat really fatty things yep. and get calories where they could. So, a little bit different. So, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, you get a sour cream that's got a high percentage of fat, mix it with butter, which I'm quite certain has a high percentage of fat, put those two together, you can't go wrong. No, it's awesome. Unless I you have a cholesterol it. problem, then you're certainly going very wrong. We don't recommend anything on this show to cholesterol no. high people, I don't think. No. Listen, don't touch anyone with cholesterol problems. <laughs> Just have the herring, but don't have the, the potatoes and yeah. mayonnaise on top. That's one option. So I love this stuff because it, it's sort of, it's very spreadable because it's been very thinned down with the sour cream, but it's still like a firm, it is like a thin butter. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not like a sour cream. It's not milky in any way like that. But of course, because it's Lithuania, although you could smear it on some rye bread, you don't normally do that. You get it served with potatoes. Well, duh. So you smear it on some potatoes for your little appetizer. Because it's going to taste better. Awesome. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, who needs bread? Just to get served some roast potatoes and smear buttery sour cream on top of them. There's another topping that you will find on top of this castinus, though, as well. Uh, quite often, it'll have little hemp seeds served on top. It's actually hemp seeds are really popular as a, yeah. a condiment or a food product in Lithuania. And the oil and the seeds are actually a really good source of omega-3 and omega-6 oils. Oh. So they, that's your fish substitute there. Yes, please. Apparently, hemp oil contains about twice as much as fish liver oil does for omega. Oh, I'd way rather have that. So, yeah, that's crazy. I had no idea because, of course, it's all been demonized due to anti-drug laws. And, of course, this yeah. stuff is not... A it's, drug in any way. It's a food. No, it doesn't have the THC in it at all. Yeah, there's no drug in it. And actually, it's very, very good for you. And this helps against uh, sunlight deficiency and depression. So, not surprisingly, that's a really good natural solution in Lithuania. Oh, for where sure. Winters are cold and long. Yeah, peasants have been growing hemp for food for many generations, long before potatoes actually became popular. And in the 19th century, as we discussed in the last episode... Whether they had any illicit enjoyment of the rest of the bush and what it produces, I don't know. But roasted hemp seeds, they've made it into beer. Which it's a is great beer. Also, definitely not a drug-based beer. This is just a flavoring. No, yeah. It's it, awesome. No, it, yeah, it was just absolutely a flavoring and it was very nice. I quite enjoyed the hemp beer. Yep. So, make sure you try out uh, hemp beer when you're there. And, of course, the castinus, possibly with hemp seeds on top. That's not guaranteed. It depends where you go to have it. Anyway, even after two episodes so far, there's still a lot more dishes from the main courses and starters that we haven't talked about in these episodes because they're just things you should eat, not stuff that has a story behind it. So head to foodfuntravel.com slash Lithuania podcast and you can find that complete list. But, all right, let's talk dessert. And let's talk Lithuanian's national dessert. All right. Uh, this is called sakotis, and it is Lithuanian tree cake. And the word sakotis specifically means branched in Lithuania. 
And there's actually another name for this dish you'll see used some of the time, ragulis, which means spiked. So hopefully this gives you an idea. It is a strangely tree-shaped spiky cake. Think of it as like a like a, a miniature Christmas tree that's yellow <laughs> and a cake. Yeah, it's a cake tree. Yeah. There you go. Cake Christmas tree. The cake's traditionally made by slowly pouring batter, which has been made from butter, eggs, flour, sugar, and cream, onto a thick cylindrical spit roasted in front of an open fire. So it's like a horizontal rotisserie cake, basically. And after the central cylinder has sort of cooked down so that it's, it's firm rather than dripping, then they start increasing the speed of the rotisserie spinning so that all these little bits, as you continue to pour batter on, just continue spraying out to the outsides until they're like spiky pine yeah, tree Yeah, it's a cakes. shame we didn't get to see it being made. That was some, yeah. one thing we were trying to find, but everything was already sort of pre-made and delivered. It, it wasn't something that we got to see, sadly. It's actually really labor-intensive to make it. So people only really do it for special occasions or, of course, these days they do it to sell. Yeah. But really it would have been a special occasion sort of thing because you actually end up rotating it in front of the spit for hours. Because you think how long it takes for a pancake batter, say, to, or a cake batter to firm up yeah. in front of heat. It takes a little bit of time. So this is like hours and hours of spinning this thing to eventually then make the spikes on the outside. Uh, so yeah, it used to mainly be made for things like Christmas Eve and weddings. And it's definitely considered the national cake of Lithuania. It was actually really easy for us to find this in any of the traditional markets. Yeah, it's in, in the markets. It's sometimes on the menu at some of the restaurants. There was a couple of times we asked for it and they said that they, were, they didn't have it that day. Yeah. Um, but definitely we saw it at the markets plenty. Yeah, so you'll definitely find it. It's not my absolute favorite thing. I mean, the flavor reminded me of something from my childhood, but I can't pick out what we it was. We were both the same. We couldn't put our finger exactly on what it was, but I mean, yeah. It's a little crispy, so it's not really a cake. I mean, it is a cake, but it's, it's a bit like a cake hard. biscuit. Yeah, it's more closer to a cake biscuit, but it's cake. Cake, cake biscuit. Shortbready kind of, but not, but... Yeah, not really shortbready because it's no. not buttery enough to be a shortbread. No, but like the tech... I don't know. It's, it's a bit hard to pinpoint. You have to give it a try yourself and let us yeah. know what you think it tastes like. You have to try it out. Now, the tradition of cooking cakes on a spit has been around at least since the 15th century. Uh, almost every single source I read on this topic seems to have a slightly different opinion on who originally started making these cakes. And it's possible that in Lithuania, it's sometime between the 16th century, but even as late as the 20th century when this became like a really popular cake dish. Ah. So it's like that vague. Um, but there's actually, there's actually quite a long history to these cakes, possibly before the 15th century. The, there's documentary evidence that suggests that dough being cooked on a spit, like bread being cooked on a spit, was being made in Greece, ancient Greece, as long ago as 450 BC. Well, that would make sense. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, essentially they wrap dough around a spit and then they rotate it in front of a, yeah. a warm fire. Or just wrap it around a stick. Yeah. It's going to be like one of the basic things you think. You make bread, wrap it around a stick, rotate it on a, around a fireplace. It's kind of yeah, kind of basic. But it's also sort of like an interesting choice of doing that rather than just putting it on a hot rock or yeah. baking it in straight in the fire. or Yeah. So I guess when the fire is really hot, maybe you make that. And then when the fire cools down, you can make the bread directly on the fire. And Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? I don't know. But there's actually references um, all the way back to Greek authors like Aristophanes in his book The Farmers, and also in Socrates' sixth book, Epithets, 
And so, yeah, the oldest one of those references from 450 BC. But that was bread, not cake. So I'm like, well, I can't really give it to you. That's just bread. Yeah, totally different. Yeah. I mean, they also do cheesy bread here in Georgia on a spit. It's amazing. And that's awesome. I love that. I don't know what connection that has to any of this, but I still want to eat it. We had to bring it up because it's good. Cheese stuffed bread just <laughs> rotated on a spit on a barbecue. Fantastic. And their bean stuffed bread on a spit is really good too. Yes. Lobiani on, on a spit. spit. Yeah, it's good. There's anyway, good that's bread. a different episode. Go listen different- to our Georgia food episode. <laughs> There's some other things to talk about there, yeah. Okay, so in 1450, though, this is probably the first modern reference to a spit cake. Uh, it was mentioned in a manuscript, which is still you should available be careful today. with saying spit cake. Okay, <laughs> it, it doesn't have good meanings. Say like on a spit, cake on a spit, not spit cake. So cake on a spit, the earliest reference that's very specific is probably from 1450 and this is mentioned in a manuscript that is still available today in the university library of heidelberg germany and apparently this was called speischkuchen and so it specifically refers to uh, some sort of cake that was being made on a rotisserie by 1539 a cookbook belonging to the dominican order gives a detailed description as to the exact recipe this is another German reference. Uh, the original cake on a spit uh, all seem to be relating to Germany. And although you may find other ones around Europe, that some of them are made from thicker dough where they coil the dough around the spit and then they just cook it. Yep. You've probably seen them like funnel cakes in the Czech Republic. Oh, yeah. Um, I think they have a different name as well, but funnel cakes are a popular name that people use for them. Yeah, that's like a yeah. thick dough that they just put around a spit and then they I do it. I cannot resist the smell. Oh, my goodness. It drives me insane when you walk past a funnel cake stand. Yeah. So good. Cinnamon and sugar. Oh, yum. That's probably the original type of cake on a spit. Yeah, that would make sense because it was thicker because, yeah, and that's what makes it so unique compared to these ones that you have in Lithuania because I don't know how they get it to stay. Like, how did they, how did they make the designs to make it spiky? It's- well, that's it because of the you pour just a little bit of batter on and it sticks to the batter that's already cooked. Yeah, and as you spin it, it sort oh. of creates spikes, but it like lots of it does drip off, but not all of it drips off. Yeah. And as those spikes grow and you keep pouring more stuff on, then it keeps growing the but spikes. As you said, it has to be like crazy labor intensive. It's really, really crazy. Yeah. The original ones would have been a firm dough that would have been easy to wrap around the spit. So that that makes it so much easier to make. But the very first time that something similar to Sokotis was being made was a recipe from 1585. And that is also a German recipe written in detail by Susanna Guandschindiren. No, I can't say it. I'm just going to not say it. Guandschindiren. Nah, not even close. Not even close. What is it a German name you said? Susanna G. It's a very long surname. Yeah. Sorry, Susanna. 1585, definitely this sort of cake was being made. So that's what's going on. But there is an actual legend to the first creation of Sarkotis in Lithuania, which also is based in the 16th century. So it's like, could this have been happening there first and they didn't write it down? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, who knows? But the Germans wrote it down. So this is a story involving Queen Bona Sforza. She's actually from Italy, and she married the King of Poland at the time, in the 16th century. And of course, at that point, that's like in the 16th century, that's when whoever was King of Poland was also sort of Duke of the Lithuanian. Yeah, it was the whole... Commonwealth, like that's where the Commonwealth had happened. So, she was now married to them. So, she was based somewhere in Poland, Lithuanian Commonwealth. 
Now, this could have happened either in 40, 1543 or 1547, but their only son, the heir to the throne, Sigismund Augustus II, was going to get married. And, well, he actually got married twice, so we don't know which of the weddings this happened at. So it could have been 1543 or 1547. But Queen Bonus ordered the chefs to create a new cake worthy of a royal wedding. As they do. As they do. And apparently, uh, they went, well, let's take the spit cake idea, but let's spin it a bit faster so that the big branches form. And that was it. Spit cake. So they took the cake on the spit and they went, let's <laughs> spin it a bit faster and let's get those branches spiking out. Yeah. Because there are other versions of it where it's not really spiky. It's just a bit bumpy. Yeah. Whereas this, like, is the Super Lithuanian spiky. version is very spiky. And they can make it really big, too. Like, it's not just a small cake. When they really go for it, they can make these really, really big versions of this cake. I don't think I wrote down the record, but I did see a photo of one like a in really a factory, one, and yeah. it is, like, eight meters long. Yeah. And it's just this massive industrial production machine that's being automatically rotated. It's, it was crazy. But yeah, so this was just a legend. No one seems to have written down a specific reference that it was happening. We know that the liquid batter cake was being made from 1585 in Germany at least. So it's possible that around the same time this was happening in Lithuania, uh, Germany was a neighbor to Poland. They were right there. So cuisine would probably have been jumping between the two. And yeah, I I mean, the only innovation they really did there was they span it a bit faster so that the spikes got longer than they otherwise would have done. So, I mean, it's not beyond belief that they could have done that around about the same time because you know people write recipes down 50 years after the recipe was invented so mm-hmm. they could have all been doing it at the same time who knows but yeah just no written evidence for it as always uh, which is why the estimates are based on the oral legend uh, from the 16th century but all the way up to the what apparently is the first written documentation in the 20th century of it being a lithuanian cake oh, wow Sakratis. they really took their time on that didn't they but it seems probably likely that at least by the 18th century this tradition would have spread into lithuania and it would have yeah, started to be changed. The really strange thing is there is an identical version of this cake in the south of France. Like literally oh, really? the like the the sort of tree cake style. All of the other ones that you see, like there's one in Austria as well, that's not spiky. That's one of the ones that's a bit bumpy. Yeah. But the one in the south of France is much closer to the Lithuanian one, but it's like they've completely separated. Because like these areas are nowhere near each other. But if you read up on a bit of history from the area, you'll know that Napoleon actually stayed in Vilnius and when he went on his campaign against Russia, which failed, and then on the way back in 1812, he stayed there again. And it's believed that possibly the reason it's a massive dish in the south of France is that Napoleon brought it back because they were eating it in Lithuania. That would make sense. So that would sort of support the idea that at least they were in Lithuania for a bit hanging out. Yeah, I mean, months, though, rather than years. But yeah, they were there for a little while. Yeah, I mean, but like, they just didn't pass through for a couple of days. They like had time to eat the food. And- I mean, it's possible either way that this just spread from Germany to the south of France, and then they randomly adapted the recipe to be very similar to the Lithuanian one independently, because, I mean, it's not that much of a big adaption to just spin it faster or whatever. No, it, it's just someone like either stuffs it up and goes, oh, crap, I spun it too fast. And then they're like, oh, actually, that looks Ooh, cool. Sort of cool. Or it's someone going, let's just give this a try and see what happens. 
So, yeah, there's no real evidence of it, but there's a possible connection with Napoleon. That could fit. Maybe not. Maybe it was independent. Nah, let's not give it to Napoleon. He's already got enough stuff. <laughs> okay, okay, sure. Napoleon did nothing! <laughs> um, so, yeah, whether inspired by a 16th century wedding or not, or coming later, it's definitely become a cultural wedding tradition. And if you don't get to it, invited to a wedding whilst you're in Vilnius, of course, head to those local markets and you can find yourself whole ones or bits that are like broken side bits. So you don't have to buy a whole one because that gets a bit crazy if it's only like one or two people Yeah, even the it. small ones a lot. Yeah. So there you go. All right. A couple more things to finish up with. We're heading into the final dessert territory. Let's talk about obuliosurus. Or apple cheese. Apple cheese. It's no cheese. It's no, no cheese in it. No, there's none at all. So, yeah. So, if you, for the lactose intolerant people listening, don't worry. You can eat it. There is no cheese in it. And, and then when you go, oh, there's no cheese in it, then you're like, that doesn't sound very appetizing. But I was very pleasantly surprised. It's tasty. It's, uh, it's not too sweet. And it's has its name because it looks a bit like a block of cheese and they cut it up like they slice it up like you would a block of cheese. Yeah. But it's actually just made from apples. It, it's more like a just like a dense fruit bar kind of thing. Yeah, well, it's more of a fruit gel, isn't it? Yeah. It's like a yeah dense, firm fruit gel than a bar. And it's like a bigger size that they chop up into little bits. It's apples, sugar and cinnamon boiled together to make a mush. And then the liquid is squeezed out with a muslin cloth. And then once it has got all of that liquid out, it is left to dry for like 30 days or so, maybe a little more, until it goes into this firm sort of brown, apple sweet block. It kind of reminds me of like baby treats. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, like that sort of stuff. It's delicious. I really enjoy it. Yeah, it would have been the perfect way to make the apple harvest keep over the months when uh, the apples were going to go off. You just turn it into this and then you got lots of instant calories right there. It's estimated the practice is about 100 years old or possibly longer. If so, it probably would have been made with honey before sugar turned up. If it was being made before, I can't get any definite estimates on when they started making this. But like most traditional foods, this product is also popular in other countries like Poland, Belarus, uh, anywhere that was within the Lithuanian borders and close to Lithuania. Yeah. And finally... The, the oldest dessert in Lithuania, or at least people believe it is. Uh, final mention for cucumber with honey. What? Yeah, back in the day. Uh, well, it's freshness and sweetness together. No, no it, I mean, it, it, it makes sense. It's like having apple slices with honey or with peanut butter or something like that. It's that sort of thing. But Well, cucumber used to be considered a fruit, and I think technically it is still a fruit. Yeah, it's a whole seeds thing. Yeah, but it's become a salad vegetable type thing. What is it? Vegetables don't have seeds. Fruits yeah, have seeds. supposedly so. So tomato and cucumber would be fruits. Yeah. Yeah, obviously such a simple dessert. Cucumbers would be readily available to people of all income levels. And forest honey was also amazingly important. Honey is a very important part of the culture there. And has it still is today. Sugar is cheaper, so they use sugar to make stuff now. But honey was always a very, very important product. Yeah. And let's be honest, honey's just better. Always will be. Yeah, honey's awesome. Yay, bees! Go, bees! Go do something nice for the bees today. Yeah, well, unfortunately, the poor bees didn't have a great time of it once the Soviets turned up because they wanted to mass-produce everything as much as possible. So they were like, let's firstly deforest half of Lithuania Uh... to use the trees to build things. And then, like, yeah, once we've destroyed half the honey industry, let's just use sugar for everything because 
that's cheaper All right. and quicker production. Everyone go out and plant a tree and do something nice for the bees today. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, like honey was a traditional part of the drinking culture as well, because mead is one of the old drinks that they would have there. So, yep. honey-based alcohol. And that's another thing that then turned into just modern beer and using sugars to make beers rather than using honey. Not because that good. was a cheap way for them to make beer in a mass production sort of sense. So, yeah, sort of sad. I'm actually going to do another episode on Lithuanian beer and drinks separately because yeah. actually it's really interesting. We didn't realize going into Lithuania that they actually have this really old tradition of making beer and it's very specific to Lithuania. So... Um, we actually have a article out already that you can go and check out, but we, uh, we have to record the podcast still. Yes, we've got an article on the actual craft beer bars and everywhere we went to, but I haven't gone into depth on the specific types of beer, but uh, you can head to foodfuntravel.com slash Lithuania beer, and that'll tell you about the craft beer places you can visit in Vilnius, and I'm going to get on top of getting a, a full thing together, because... Most people obviously know Germany, Belgium, England, maybe Czech Republic, like famous, famous beer countries. Yeah, definitely. But the beer in Lithuania is made in a style that has been classified as different from those beer styles. It is not like, it doesn't necessarily derive from those beer styles. So it is a completely unique beer. They even have types of yeast that are completely unique and have never been used in beers in other countries. Like they found these specific yeasts that they're still using in the farmhouse breweries there. Super crazy. And let's be honest. They have a beer god from the pagan times, and there is still pagans that live in Lithuania. And in Vilnius, you can go and visit the little uh, altar to the beer god, and there is a candle in it, like an eternal flame in it, that is always lit. And nobody knows who keeps, who tends to it. It's nobody knows in town. Obviously, the person who tends to it does, but it's like top super secret who this person is who tends to this eternal flame, and it's always it's always lit. They come in secret when no one's looking, and they they make sure this topped up with fuel or yeah. whatever. It's pretty cool. Wax. Yeah. So the yeah they're keeping the eternal flame lit for Lithuanian beer, and certainly going to be an interesting topic to look at some of the crazy world of beer, and maybe just a general history of beer. Yeah. That could be a, a big episode, so that might be coming at some point. Deep Dive Five-Parter, History of Beer. So definitely make sure you uh, hold on for that one. We'll get back to you with another episode about Lithuanian beer at some point. But for this episode, that's it. Thanks for joining us for part two of Lithuanian food. That's a lot of food. It's a lot of food. But I think it's really good to know if you're planning a trip to Lithuania, you it can be like really daunting about what to eat. So we've broken it all down for you. You can have, you know, a bit of an idea of what to try, what's more local than other things. Cause as we said, there's definitely a lot of crossover from other, uh, you know, regional cultures and stuff like that. So this is sort of a bit more of the, the real authentic Lithuanian taste that you'll get. If you, uh, if you happen to visit Lithuania anytime in the near future. Yes. Yeah, so do head to foodfuntravel.com slash Lithuania podcast. And you can find more information on other dishes we didn't mention, plus some photos of everything. So you can see what helps. this stuff looks like. That'll get your taste buds what tingling. Fairing, fairing, no, sh- herring, herring under a fur coat. What does it look like? Uh, Got a photo of it. It's tastier looking thing. Go see. I, I think it looks cool. It's colourful. Uh, so that's it for this episode. Of course, as always, remember to rate and review. And tell your friends about the show. That's the most important one, really. Rate and review is is great, but telling your friends about it and getting new people to listen is even more important. So 
do spread the word. Help us out. Help us keep this show going. Maybe eventually we'll end up going back to once a week rather than once every two weeks. Could happen. Could happen. Could, could happen. Uh, but yeah, that's it from us. We'll see you next time on another episode of The Dish. Thanks for listening to The Dish. Don't forget to subscribe and keep this podcast on the air by giving us a five-star review on your preferred podcast app or channel. Also, come join our foodie community on Facebook in the Food Worth Travelling For Facebook group. Catch you next time.